Whenever I visit France, I always see lots of top bottles for sale, but when I get back home, those same bottles can be much harder to find, if not impossible. That's why I use IdealWine.com. At IdealWine.com, I can buy wines directly from France for delivery directly to my home. They have new auctions every week, and the fixed price selection is equally awesome. Clos Rouchard, Chateau Reyes, and Ulysse Colon, as well as many more greats from all over France, are regularly available on the website. Best of all, it is simple and hassle-free to buy them. Ideal Wine handles all the customs and logistics hurdles for you and for me. Wines are ordered with a couple of clicks, and then they arrive. It is simple. Check out IdealWine.com for more information. That's I-D-E-A-L-W-I-N-E.com to find what you'd like to be drinking. I'll drink to that, where we get behind the scenes of the beverage business. I'm Levy Dalton. I'm Erin Scala. And here's our show today. Tara Q. Thomas on the show of the Wine and Spirits magazine. Hello, how are you? Good, thank you. Thanks for having me today. Nice to have you here. So you went to culinary school originally and you were a, a Russian major. I was. I think I did Russian just to make certain that what I really wanted to do was cook. But <laughs> what I really did want to do was cook. And I knew that from a very young age. My mom was a great cook and she ran a catering business out of our home and always let my sister and I help. And uh, so by the time I was 15, I'd gotten a job in a professional kitchen, working garde manger and desserts and, uh, and sometimes grill, which was awesome for a 15 year old. And that started it every year from for the next 10 years, I worked in restaurants throughout high school, throughout college. And as soon as I graduated, I kind of freaked out and thought, what am I going to do with a Russian major? I'm going to go to culinary school. And uh, like three weeks later, I went to CIA. By the time I got out of culinary school, though, I was done, totally done working restaurants. I really, I wanted to be in the food world, but I did not want to work the hours and be on my feet and such. I wanted some other experience. So I came down to the city, worked lots of other jobs, um, worked for Jeffrey Steingarten, food critic at Vogue for a while. Worked at what was that like? Working for Jeffrey was uh, really hard and really great. I wouldn't be half the writer I am today without him. You know, he's trained as a lawyer, and nothing is ever enough. And he was the first person who taught me that there is no such thing as a stupid question and never assume anything. If it's a well-known fact, that's all the more reason to go after it and see what you can disprove. One of my proudest moments was when he actually gave me a compliment. Um, he was doing an article on French fries, and I spent hours in the New York Public Library researching French fries and researching when the earliest use of the word French fry was. And I actually found a usage that predated the OED's definition. So That's pretty serious, actually. It was pretty serious. I mean, yeah. people spend their lives doing that, yeah, that kind of work, exactly. right? Exactly. Like, and not coming up with that. Exactly. So. Exactly. So that was great. It was a really good foundation for, for learning how to write and edit um, what sort of questions you need to ask and such. He wrote very clean and he also had the luxury of time and an assistant, right? So I perhaps developed very high standards, unnaturally high standards from him. 
that you kind of put on yourself as a, a single writer, like by yourself. Exactly. Exactly. But that's a good thing. And then you were working at Kitchen Arts and Letters for a while. Yeah. One of the best jobs I've ever had. That store is unbelievable, not just in the amount of food and wine books that they carry, but the amount of knowledge carried in Knock Waxman, the owner, and Matt Sartwell, the co-owner. The two of them, you can ask them about anything, and they'll know exactly which books to look it up in, even if they've been out of print for 20 years. uh, They're just encyclopedias of knowledge. And uh, I met a lot of different people in the food world, chefs and researchers, and um, and that was just, that was a great place. Absolutely great place to work. How did the transition go to the wine and spirits? Eventually, I looked at everything I'd done. I thought, okay, I've worked in every position in a restaurant, front of the house, back of the house. I've done the coffee bar. I've done the bookstore. I've done the research. The one thing I don't know anything about is wine. And maybe that's not exactly true. I had a little bit of experience of wine in culinary school. And in fact, I really, really liked it. So much so that my teachers, Stephen Colpan and Michael Weiss, they were studying for their masters at the time. And they asked me if I would help them by setting up blind tastings. So they essentially gave me the keys to the CIA wine cellar. And every week I had to go in and pick out wines that were good, solid, classic examples that required a lot of study on my part because I had, you know, you get two weeks of wine education in your two-year CIA program. was not a lot. And I grew up in a dry household. I did not have any exposure to wine previous to that. So it was a lot of studying and a lot of guesswork, but I got to taste everything that they tasted. And they would review the tastings with me afterwards. And so I learned a lot on the side besides what I learned in class. So I did know a little bit. I knew enough that I knew that I knew very little. (laughs) Well, it takes a while. So I mean, that took me years to figure that out. (laughs) Right, right. A little knowledge can be a very dangerous thing, right? So, So I knew that I had so much more to learn. And while living in the city after culinary school, I really wanted to learn. And I tried to buy as much wine as I could, and I read books, and I developed a relationship with my uh, local salespeople and such, but it still wasn't enough. And I finally decided I need to find a job in the wine business where I'm just surrounded by wine. You wanted to get paid to learn about wine. Exactly. I mean, maybe, you know, if you, if it no, could work out exactly. that way. Exactly. <laughs> That's what I wanted. I wanted to get paid to learn about wine. So that very week when I made that decision, there was an ad in the New York Times classified section. That's how long ago this was when there were actually jobs advertised in the New York Times classifieds and people read them. And there was a job listed for basically a data entry person at an unnamed magazine in New Jersey. So I applied and you know I faxed my resume and I got a response and it turned out to be Josh Green at Wine and Spirits magazine who asked me to come in for an interview. To this day, I have no idea why he decided to take a chance on me. At the time when he asked me, so what kind of wines do you like to drink? I said, you know, I really like Chilean Merlot. And you know that bottle with the little plastic bull around the neck? And um, well, I was going to say to his credit, he didn't burst out laughing, but he did actually burst out laughing. But <laughs> he hired me anyway. And, uh, and it was just, it turned out to be an incredible opportunity. I mean, you think data entry, okay, you're just logging in wines. That sounds pretty boring. But in fact, there's a lot to be learned from reading wine labels. You need to figure out what is 
the important information on the label and what's not. And, you know, you need to f- figure out what the difference is between Grand Cru and Premier Cru or Kolyaita and Tawny. And, and you need to figure out also all the information that is important that's not on the label. In the New York office of Wine and Spirits magazine, we do only the imported wines. So any of the wines that are labeled by place, you need to know the grape variety, for instance. You need to know the laws of that region, what the oak aging is, and all of that. All of that goes into the database. So simply by entering the wines, I learned an enormous, enormous amount. It would take me hours. The first time I had to do a German tasting, I logged in all the German wines, and then I had to divide the wines up into you know, 215 wines. I had to divide them up into tastings of 35 or 40 wines each. And Josh wanted it geographically. That's how we do most of our tastings. So he went home, and I took all the wines. I took the wine atlas, put it in front of me, and took all the wines and lined them up on the floor, following the Mosul all the way along. And, you know, I was there till like 1130 at night. And this was when the office was in New Jersey. And there was only, you know, one bus every two hours at that hour. But I learned so much. And I remember this feeling of finally being done and being like, yes, I have it. I understand the geography a little bit more now. And then once those tastings were set up, the deal that Josh made with me was if I was able to set the tastings up, pour the wines, clean the glasses, keep everything flowing for the tastings, I was allowed to sit in the tastings and taste, um, which I did. I busted my butt so I could do that because as with all the tastings at the magazine, the wines are tasted blind with a panel of local experts, you know, local people in the industry. And so it was Josh tasting with this all-star team of sommeliers, you know, people like David Gordon from Tribeca Grill and Scott Carney and... Uh, Jean-Luc Ledoux and Daniel Janis and Andrea Immer and, you know, it was this constant stream of unbelievable people to taste with. And they were so nice to me, so encouraging. That was a wonderful experience. But also, I got to learn so much from them. It was like having a masterclass every time I sat down because I got to listen to how they described wine, how they communicated about it, what they were looking for in the wines, what they reacted to. I think Josh tends to prompt people for that. Like, he doesn't allow you to just get away with, I like this one. Oh, no, no. You're not allowed to say that. <laughs> and Yeah, you're not allowed to, to express a non-opinion, basically, and you're not allowed to try to bullshit your way through it either. You, you have to kind of show to. the work. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. How did you come to this conclusion? Right. Verbally. Right. And that's great training for, I think, everybody who comes to the tastings. I think it's one of the reasons why a lot of the sommeliers continue to come to the tastings because it's real work to figure out how to communicate about a wine, how to communicate what you're tasting and how to really look at a wine and not just have that knee-jerk reaction of, I like this, I don't like this. Because at some level with what we're doing, I like this. That's, that's not a valid answer. You might not like it, but someone else may like it quite a lot. I found Josh to be a very patient, but also he doesn't pull his punches as a taster. He's perfectly willing to let the wine settle on his palate, but then he's perfectly willing to light it on fire <laughs> if, if he doesn't like it, you know. This is true. This is true. And I think part of that comes from just the sheer number of wines we taste. You know, this last year we tasted, what was it, 15,200 wines over the course of 12 months. I mean, it's an enormous and overwhelming amount of wine. And, um, and we really do taste every one of those bottles that comes into the office. But also, there's so much wine. 
why hold back? You know, when somebody does something well, we really want to recognize it. And when someone pollutes your palate, then you have no time for that. It's not worth it. So how long were you doing data entry? I mean, what was the progression? Because now you're the executive editor. Right. Um, I don't really know. It seemed like I input wines for a long time. But at the same time, Josh very quickly gave me more more responsibility. And I think the the turning point was when I said to him, you know, there's some really interesting things happening in Greek wine. And why did you have that conversation? I mean, what would lead you to say that? Well, yes, it was a bizarre thing to say in 1998, perhaps. <laughs> Not very many people were saying that. But um, when I was in culinary school, I did my externship in Athens, which was not the most obvious place to go, but uh, I had really wanted to go to a different country. And I was more interested in learning about a different culture and how food intertwined with the culture uh, than actually learning how to cook. I'd done a lot of that. so I feel like that's always been a, a concern throughout your, your whole career, where the culture meets the food or to where me, it meets the wine. To me, that's what's interesting. That's the most interesting thing. Otherwise, it's just a liquid in a glass, but there's so much that a glass... A wine or a, or a food can tell you about the geography, the geology, the climate, the people, the culture. It, there's so much contained in there. So for me, food and wine are a way of exploring exploring the world. And that I, you know, I learned that from a very young age. My mom, when she was raising my sister and I, we lived in a rural part of way upstate New York. And she was bored out of her mind. And she had the Time Life series of cookbooks and cooked her way all the way through them. So we would have some crazy, crazy dinners. And she'd let my sister and I flip through them and look at the pictures and say, we'd like to have this for dinner. And so we'd have a Viennese feast for dinner. Or, you know, You're like, aspic again. <laughs> right. You know, and we did. We did crazy things in aspic and Russian feasts. And so that was, that was great training and a great way to see the world without without having a lot of means to actually go travel and such. But you had been to Greece and what was that like? It was hard. I didn't know Greek. I don't know why it hadn't occurred to me that it would have been good to at least learn the alphabet before I went, but I didn't. Um, and I hadn't realized that the only reason why I had gotten the okay to go was that there was a Greek guy at school who'd kind of cleared it for me. We were friends, and, and he said, yeah, this will be fine. When he had gone, he was a few classes ahead of me. When he'd gone, um, he was friends with the couple that ran the restaurant, and he essentially just took over the restaurant, and they went on vacation. I didn't realize that that's what they expected me to do when I arrived as well. I literally arrived at the airport, and Larry, the owner, said, oh, Aliki has already gone on vacation, and I'm joining her in three days. So their six-year-old, Francesca, began right then and there teaching me how to read Greek. And uh, by day three, I was running the restaurant, going to the market every day and doing the shopping and doing all the cooking. It was just me and a 18-year-old server in the front. And it was kind of crazy. It was very, very crazy. Let me just give my comment about that, which is, oh, my God. <laughs> yes. Like... <laughs> Like, how do you even do that? Like, had you made tzatziki before and stuff? I mean, how do you even, how, how do you even begin? Well, I mean, as a, I felt like as a cook, you know, you, you take someone's recipes and you execute. Sure. And so, th there was a recipe book. and There was a recipe book. There were other things that they said, like, they had lived in New York. Larry was actually a New Yorker. 
they decided they wanted to do a New York style Sunday brunch. So I was brought in for authenticity. <laughs> You're like, these was, are good bagels. I was making bagels, hand making bagels on Saturday night for Sunday morning service. Um, yeah, it was pretty crazy. Could you read the orders when they came in? Like when the lady handed you the the dupe or yeah. the written thing, could you be like, could you understand what it is they wanted? Or were you just like, grilled fish again? Okay, let's do this. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? I, I, it's a white fish. They'll so never <laughs> tell the difference. We're going to put a little lemon in it, a little herb. Right. No, I, I actually, I can read Greek. Yeah. And I can speak a little Greek now. And uh, I mean, it was, it was really just trial by fire. And it was hard. Like I remember going to the market. We had a like a college dorm refrigerator. That was it. So we had to. I had to shop every morning, five thirty in the morning. Went down to the central central market, and one of my first days there, when Larry went to show me which purveyors he liked to buy from, we ended up in this fight with the dried fruit vendor where he, we were getting pelted with raisins, and they're swearing at each other in Greek, and it was completely crazy because Larry had insulted the quality of his raisins. And everything was very, very emotional. I went to buy a chicken, and the lady selling the chicken said, which one do you want, this one or that one? And I said, I'll take this one. And she completely reamed me out for the next 15 minutes because I had, in her eyes, picked the lesser one. And she knew that I was covering for her client, Larry. And she's like, you have to, you have to be better at this you have to really look at this chicken look at look at the legs and look at the breast and why would you want this scrawny little thing you want this one and it was really intense i've had nightmares that sound more fun than, than that <laughs> like actual dream nightmares that right. were more accommodating than some of those moments you were pelted with raisins in the street yes <laughs> yes chased down the aisles of the market and with everyone looking on laughing so <laughs> but um but I came, I came to really love that uh, very emotional reaction to, to everything, to even what I consider very mundane things. Because that's um, not how you were brought up. That really. was not how I was brought up. No, not at all. Right. And, and also, that attitude extended to bad things. You know, when a Greek gets angry, they get angry. But when they are happy, they are very demonstrative as well. And, and they're very, in general, very, very open. And after shift, I would go across the street to this little bar and try to study Greek and everybody would would bear my horrible Greek and have conversations with me late into the night and it was and they would talk about real things you know not just girlfriends and boyfriends but you know we had conversations about politics and the area that the restaurant was in was Ixakia which was kind of the anarchists area it was the equivalent would be the Lower East Side here. You know, lots of graffiti, lots of you know, punk rock. But there's graffiti everywhere. <laughs> like, I don't know what it was like then, but now, I mean, there's nowhere there's no graffiti. Yeah, I no, mean, it was know. much rougher, much rougher than, than, it, than it is now, in fact. What, what was it about the wine side that drew you in initially? Well, so I had an experience there. At, at, toward the end of my externship, I had to go to a client's house and cook a, a luau, actually, bizarrely. And he had... They made you pick out of the book the picture <laughs> that you wanted to cook? They're like, <laughs> look at these Time Life books. <laughs> right. We're going to do Hawaiian tonight. Um, I don't know why he wanted a luau. But anyway, we drove out to the estate and did a... Not the estate, it was his house. But um, there I was with a pig, um, roasting a pig, up on this bluff overlooking the Mediterranean, surrounded by vineyards and... 
It was incredibly beautiful. And at the end of the party, he came over with a glass of wine to say thank you. And I looked at the glass of wine and, you know, remember I had no experience with wine whatsoever, but he handed it to me in a tumbler and I looked at it and it was cloudy and yellow and not like what I expected, expected a glass of wine to look like. And I tasted it and it was the most vivid experience I've ever had with a glass of wine. And I'm sure it's partly because I was exhausted. I was in this incredibly beautiful area, but it tasted like the sun. It tasted like the sea. It tasted like everything all around me. And I, I've never had such a, a vivid connection between a glass of wine and the place I'm and the place it's from. And I asked him, what is this? And he's like, oh, it's, it's my wine. And I asked him where he made it. And, you know, he pointed to his garage and he, it came from the vineyards where it, uh, right around there. He didn't, as far as I can remember at any rate, say anything about the grape variety or how he made it. Um, and it was the first time also that it struck me that wine was something that is very elemental and very accessible. You know, this guy was not a fancy winemaker. He didn't have a winery. He was a farmer, right? It was just the same as if someone had said, oh, I grow some tomatoes. Here's some tomato sauce I put up. You know, he's like, I grow some grapes. Here's some wine I put up. So that was an eye-opening experience for me. At the same time, when I went back to the States, I really wanted to get back to Greece. I wanted to find some excuse, and I never found it through food, but I started doing some more research into Greek wine because the history of Greek wine goes very far back, of course, and I was interested in that. And I learned that there were quite a few new wineries coming up and that the wine scene was changing quickly. So I tried to sell Josh on this idea that, in fact, Greek wine is really up and coming and there's some really exciting things going on. And I mean, it sounds like some exciting tasting notes, like the sea, the moon, it's all <laughs> right, in here, right. you know? I yeah. mean, yeah. Well, that was the only uh, description I, I had for him. And his experience of Greek wine had not been so nice. So it took me a, a few months to convince him. And I think finally, just out of frustration, he's like, fine, Tara, if you can put together a Greek tasting, I'll taste and we'll see how it goes. But I mean, did he, for the first few months, say the word retsina to you every time you yes. brought up this question? <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Because, of course, that's mostly what you got in the States in the late 90s or even the early 2000s. And there's still some places in the U.S. where what you get is Ritzina. But luckily, I find that's less and less. Though I have to admit, I actually really like Ritzina. I think there are some very good Ritzinas out there. But there's a time and a place for it. And, um, and it's not good if people think that that's the only thing that's made there because there is quite a lot more. And that tasting, I, I proved that in that tasting. It wasn't an absolutely brilliant tasting, but it was, you know, it was 1998, and I think I got together 32 wines. Um, but there was enough that Josh said, you know, you're right, there are some really interesting things going on. So go ahead. If you can find your way to, to Greece, then I'm, I'm willing to listen. And so I went to Naosa, flew into Thessaloniki, and went to Naosa, where Butari is headed, and and... It was a fascinating experience. I had no idea just how far away Naosa was from Thessaloniki. I mean, it is, it is physically about two and a half hours away, but it's also just another land. It is not the Greece that you imagine. It's a very continental place with high mountains and ski resorts and not a heck of a lot going on. Um, 
and had has had a very checkered history as well. It's a rather poor region. And it was affected by war at different times. Very definitely. And you still can see that um, today. So, Was Yanis Badaris there? Yanis Butari was there. And all the Butaris were there. I got to, to meet all of them. And, and it was really interesting to see how much the company was invested, not just in the wine, but in the place. And that was really the, the driving force, I think, for, for both companies, Butari and then Kir Yanni. That which he started. Exactly, which Yanni Butari started when he split off from the Butari family company. The idea was to give the growers something to do because historically in Nausa, when people can't sell the grapes any longer, they rip out the vines and they plant peach trees. And there's been many cycles of this over time. And because of that, there's actually not a lot of old vines. Um, and then also you just you lose the cumulative knowledge of growers. It's prohibition by peach tree. Yes, yes. So they worked really hard to make certain that people kept growing grapes and encouraged them to keep their vines and not tear them out when they were 12 years old or 14 years old. And, and you know, say what you may about giant companies, but Butari did a great service to Nausa, keeping it on the winemaking map. And now if you look at Nausa, there's a whole new generation of winemakers coming. And there are all these people doing really serious research, Kiriani, for instance, or uh, Harula Spintharapalu at Argetia. These people are mapping out the vineyards. There's a terrific difference in altitude there and in soils and in exposures. And the tremendous amount of different clones of Xinomavro, and they're just figuring it out now. And so now, it used to be, Nausa was Butari Ground Reserve. That was the definition. It's a pretty good wine, actually. I mean, it, I with some age. For, for the price, I, I like it. For the price, it's terrific. And I have to say, I've tasted vintages back to 1974, and it ages fabulously. They are really some of the most beautiful wines I've tasted. And, and they're a steel. But today now you can get all sorts of different interpretations of Nausa. And that, that's super exciting. That's super exciting to watch. And there, some of them are modern. Some of them are or what I might think of as traditional flavors or more rustic flavors. Right. Right. You have that. You also have the difference between higher altitude, cooler sites on lighter soils like the wines from Argetia or some of the sites in Kiryani. And then on the deeper soils like Timiopolis's wines. So... There's a moving definition of what it is to be a Nawasa wine now, and that in itself is fascinating to follow. That there's even multiplicity, where before there was very little. Exactly, exactly. And there's more growers now as well. So when you came back to write about it, I mean, what did you find? I mean, was it a receptive audience in the States at the time writing about Greek wine? Or? It was so hard to find people to come taste with me for the first few years. It was pathetic. I would I would beg people, please come taste Greek wines with me. And I still remember the first time uh, Jean-Luc Ledoux tasted Greek wines with me and there was a Ritzina. And when he got to the Ritzina, I hadn't warned him. I had just assumed he knew what a Ritzina was and he put it in his mouth and he spat it out and pushed himself away from the table and said, what is that? In his French accent. <laughs> and it was as if I'd poisoned him. It was very funny. Um, but at the same time, I also remember the time that Roger de Gorn and a bunch of other tasters, but I remember Roger in particular, tasting 
through a flight of Santorini and just being stunned and saying, it's like the Burgundy of Greece, the Burgundy of the Mediterranean. And I felt so good and so relieved that finally somebody besides myself saw something great in, in Greek wines. And there were some Greek restaurants opening, I mean, you know. Oh, Milos and Molivos have done enormous things for Greek wine, absolutely, to put, to put the wines in the context of food in a very nice atmosphere. I mean, that's the best thing you could possibly do for them. Present them as real, as real wines, just as you would any other wine with really high-class food. I think without those restaurants, you know, Greek wine would still be something that's a curiosity, not something that people would think of as interesting and delicious. But they do now. I mean, you, you also have impacted that as well. And now it's 2015, and you've probably seen a different reaction to Greek wine over that 17-year period that you've been writing about it. It's enormously different. I mean, it really used to be the first thing out of people's mouths when I said I studied Greek wine is, you mean Ritzina? And now I actually meet people who have never heard of Ritzina. There are people who come to our tastings that have never heard of it, and that makes me so happy. It's like white is in. Right, right, like No right. one's heard of white is in. I mean, the yeah. younger people never. No, right, unless you have read some older text. It's just not part of the scene any longer. And, you know, all of my friends know that I'm into Greek wine, so I get phone calls from people all over the place saying, you'll never believe where I am. You know, I'm in Kansas City, and there's a Santorini on the list, and... But you probably also get phone calls about new producers that are really interesting. So in that period of time, which is pretty substantial, what have been some of the significant moments in your own opinion? Watching Santorini has been absolutely, absolutely fascinating because when I first went, there was still quite a lot of building instead of growing grapes. And you would drive through and see all these half-done buildings with the rebar sticking out of the roofs. And it was just uncontrolled building. And by that time the the island had already lost its tomato paste industry. They used to grow these small, intense tomatoes that made some of the what is said to be the best tomato paste in the world. But they had lost their fava industry, and wine was the only thing left, but it was very quickly disappearing under just rampant, rampant building and tourism. And again, it was Butari who came in in the late 80s, I think, 87 and just to see, just to take a look and see what was going on, what sort of potential there might have been on the island. And it was Yanis Voyatsis, the chief winemaker, who went and came back and said, you know, I think there's really a lot of possibilities here. And he put together a terrific team of researchers. And, and I say that they're terrific because now when you look at the Santorini wine scene, so many of them came out of that when Butari first launched the winery, I think 89 was their first vintage, you know, it was them and then Aguiros and, you know, a couple smaller wineries that had been there for a long time, but they're, you know, they hadn't been working with refrigeration or tanks. And it was not the greatest example of wines. The wines tended to be very dark and oxidized. and The whites um, tended to be made like reds, basically. Exactly. Yeah. So people like Yanni Periskopopoulos at Yea looked around and said, yes, there is great potential here, and there is enough room for more than one of us. So he went off on his own and started his started making wine under Yea. Haridimos Hatsidakis also started making wine. There was the current winemaker for Butari just left to start her own project. Now there are, I think, 13 active 
high-end wineries on the island and i which is more than the volcanoes so that's a plus yeah it's a very small island <laughs> it's a very small island and they i do think they are exceptional wines really world-class wines if if you believe that one of the definitions of world-class wines is a wine that can age for a long time well you know santorini no problem 10 15 years no problem at all and they're they're delicious they turn all salty and minerally and sort of a combination between a burgundy and a german riesling if you can imagine that and that's the category that's really kind of broken through for the american market seems like yeah i think it, it, the other advantage with it is it's delicious right out of the bottle as well right a nausea wine is going to be tannic and acidic and not that friendly unless you happen to have some also buco or you know something big and meaty and still you need to decant it and really it's would be much better to leave it for 10 years before you opened it so you also have followed other countries in terms of your writing and coverage and so you have a long engagement with austria what's that been like it's funny because i'm sort of the mediterranean expert and then i do the northern europe and austro-hungarian empire and i love those those wines as well i followed peter leem he was the critic for that before so tough fact to follow yeah it's been very intimidating because really it's impossible <laughs> to compete with peter he is an encyclopedia and such a sharp taster so but i got to work with him for a few years and and learned an enormous enormous amount so that was very good preparation for it but i still i have still a ton more to learn but i love going to austria it's another place where the people are very generous and warm and and there's always so much more to learn you know i started i think like most people in the states learning about the wachau and you know it was austria austria means grüner weltliner it means the wachau and kremstal and kamtal and that was it and you never thought about anything south of vienna and it was actually not until this year that i went to styria and it's a whole nother land it's like a whole nother country it has a completely different feeling and in that area there are all these other little lands that are sort of lands un- unto themselves so if you go south of vienna there's all these wine regions that are really like little countries unto their own and one of them was that i just just really discovered firsthand was western styria where they grow this grape blauer wildbacher that's not grown any place else in the world no place in austria no place else anywhere as far as they know and they make this wine that i really can't pronounce still after many many tries but schildker um it's a very sharp acidic pale red and sometimes there are frizzante versions as well and i think they're very hard to understand if you if you aren't in austria in fact or if you aren't sitting with a schnitzel in front of you or what's very famous there actually is their fried chicken it's from a special sort of chicken that's raised there it's very intensely flavored and um breaded absolutely perfectly of course different and than the greek chickens different than the greek chickens <laughs> um and when you sit there in this area it's a very dramatic area of very sharp hills and it very very i had i don't know how to explain it but it just feels like a a little area that is completely undiscovered except by people from graz who come for their weekend home but besides that it there's no feeling that it's been discovered by the outside world and 
they are very set on figuring out how many different things they can do with the shilka, the particular grape variety they have. Some of those are better than others. Some of them definitely only have a, a regional use. <laughs> but at the same time, then you have, you have producers like Langman that are making these very, very fresh, zippy, crunchy, fruited reds out of it and sparkling wines that could go absolutely anywhere or Franz and Christine Strohmeyer who are making a biodynamic version. I've seen more and more interest in those wines in, yeah. in the U.S. Yeah. You also have done some work with Hungary. You've covered Hungary, which is... Hungary is a fascinating, another fascinating place. You know, you fly into Budapest, which is fascinating in itself, but then you drive to Tokai, which is... I don't know how many hours, but it feels like forever going across this landscape that sort of looks like Ohio, just kind of flat and flat and flat. And then all of a sudden you get to this field of extinct volcanoes when you get to Tokai. And, you know, I think it's like 23 miles long between the mountains and the Bodrog River. It's a really small region and it's just pockmarked with all these little peaks and it's like geological chaos as well. You look in some of the soil, you'll look at one hill and it's bright red and another is orange and another is yellow. And here again, you have a region that has a very long history of making wine and that history was almost destroyed, right? Until 1990 when, when the wall fell and when outsiders started coming in. So you know, Royal Tokai, Hugh Johnson was one of the first, I think was the first, foreign investor to come in with his group and uh, and establish Royal Tokai. And at the time, they were just focused on reestablishing the formerly great wines of Tokai, which were the sweet, botrytist Azu wines. Right? And there was a bunch of people who followed, mostly outsider money. And to me, what's fascinating to see now is how many Hungarians have gone off and are now starting their own companies as well. People like Judith Bott and Istvan Zepsi and Zoltan Demeter. And there's a whole new wave of people who are sort of taking back their vineyards. And there's that, but there's also the realization that you can't have a wine region that is simply built on sweet wine, you know. It's not natural, for one. Nobody can drink sweet wine all the time, even though in Tokai they drink it with a lot of, a lot of things. I, that's one of the great things about Tokai is that you have the sweetness, but you've got this insane acidity as well. So it really can go with even what you would think of as rather mundane dishes. You know, I remember having a catfish and a paprika cream sauce with a uh, you know four or five petonios Tokai, and it was an amazing combination. I would never would have opened it at home and you know thought to do that myself but but at any rate you have all these winemakers who have figured out okay you know so we've got the sweet thing down now but we have all these other grapes and not all the land in Tokai is made for sweet wine right some of it is a little farther from the river it doesn't get the botrytis doesn't get the fog so now you have some really great dry wines coming out as well and I think these are some of the most compelling wines that have emerged in the last 10 years from anywhere at all. And what else have you seen in, in Hungary? Is there wine outside of Tokai? I mean, is there something else to be excited about? Absolutely. I think you have some really interesting reds coming out of more the center of the country. And then you also have, up in the northwest of the country, you have um, Shomlo, 
which has this crazy grape called Ufark, super high acid. Um, you can curse on this show, it's fine. <laughs> super high acid, really, really crazy mineral-driven flavors. Uh, I always think of it as sheepy. It reminds me a little bit of Chenin Blanc in that way, sort of a lanolin-like characteristic, but really it tastes like it's made out of rocks. Really super compelling wines. And uh, last year, actually, one of our, at the magazine, one of our top 100 wineries of the year was from Chomlo. It was the Spiegelberg. And uh, that was on the quality of of his dry Ufark and also some of the sweet wines he's making from it. And he basically has this portfolio of wines that shows the range of wines you can make with Ufark, which is anything from a dry, minerally long-lived white to these very complex, layered, sweet, botrytis wines and everything in between. So that's very exciting. Have there been labor and infrastructure challenges to winemaking in, in Hungary, like in some of the other countries you've seen? Is the condition of labor and infrastructure in Greece challenging? Is the condition of outlying areas in certain parts of Austria challenging? I think absolutely. I mean, I, I know firsthand in Greece that you can do everything, everything right, but then if they decide to have a strike at the port, your wine is going to sit on the docks in the broiling sun for months and all of that work is for naught. That's really, really hard. Austria is a much richer country. I don't know really so much in that case, but you know, one of the most interesting places to me to watch the wine industry develop is Georgia because here is a region where I had actually considered working after I um, after I graduated from culinary school, I was like, okay, I have a degree in Russian and I know how to cook. And it was the early 90s and there was a lot of interest in developing companies over there. So I thought, okay, maybe I can put these two together. And it turned out that most of the, the opportunities were actually in Georgia. Um, and I was very glad later that I didn't do that because everyone I know who did faced such immense challenges with just the most basic things. You know, setting up a company, well, it was one thing to get the the licenses and such, but it was a whole nother thing to get the thing built, right? Simple things like getting the tubes for your, getting the hoses for your winery. You know, there just weren't any for months, months at a time. Or you would have an order or something, but the truck would break down someplace along the way. You know, I had friends who were trying to run restaurants and the food would be rotting on the side of the highway. And it was really hard. And I think that they still have a lot of those challenges. It's certainly a lot better than it was. But um, it was really interesting to me that this year we tasted, we've tasted a lot of Georgian wine in the past two years. And uh, every year, each year, it's gotten more interesting, I think. And this year, one of the wineries that kind of came out on top of our blind tastings was the Shukman winery. And I didn't really, I didn't know anything about Shukman um, before tasting them. And then when I looked into it, I thought, oh, he has a natural advantage. It's run by Bernhard Shukman, who's a German who made his money in railway and crane business. Basically, he was a transportation guy. And he fell in love with Georgia when he was at some transportation conference and said, I have to get back to Georgia somehow decided that wine would be an interesting way to do it, met a, a winemaker, 
um, who's reputed to be the best winemaker in the country. And he decided, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to establish a winery. And you know, he put a ton of money into making this giant winery there and um, hiring the best people. And I think he was able to overcome a lot of the problems that a lot of locals would have. And he probably had some perhaps even guaranteed export channels that he could take advantage of for the wines. Exactly, exactly, exactly. And it's really, it, I think his wines are really fascinating. He makes, I should, he doesn't make the wine, um, Dutch really, makes both very modern stainless steel versions of the native grapes, and he also makes the Kvevri wines, the ones that are aged in the big traditional earthenware amphora. And he has a, a history of doing this. His father makes wine as well, so his, he had this history from his family of doing this. And I think, you know, I, of course, tasting blind, I had no idea that we were tasting stainless modern versions and Kvevri versions from the same winery. But when we looked at the results of the tastings afterwards, I thought, I saw, oh, it's the same winery. And then to put those two wines together, to put a, a stainless steel mitzvana next to a Kvevri mitzvana and be able to say, oh, that's what the grape tastes like. You know, you take this sort of full-bodied you know, Marsan-like white and then put it in Kvevri and look at, you can still taste the grape there, but then it's got all these other elements around it, all the spice and the nuttiness, but you, you can trace it back. And I thought that was so interesting to be able to do. You've done some work recently covering Armenia. That might be overstating it, but I am very excited by Armenian wines and uh, desperately now trying to get there. Because here's a country with a 6,100-year tradition of making wines. I mean, the oldest industrial-sized winery in the world was found there. And yet, we never see wines from Armenia, right? And I don't know many people who know anything about wines from Armenia. And this wine from Armenia came into the office and, well, okay, we'll try it. Um, and we were all fascinated by it. It was really a beautiful Wine, sort of light, uh, fine-boned, spicy, really interesting, compelling stuff. So then looking into it a little farther, I found out that it's made by a guy of Armenian descent. He lives in Milan. He's in the fashion industry. He wanted to make wine, and he looked at Tuscany, and he decided that he didn't want to go with Tuscany, so he looked around the, the rest of the world and finally decided, you know, I'm Armenian and we have mountains there. If I want a, a cool climate, high altitude wine, well, I've, I've got the place. So he went to Armenia and started this winery, Zora. And he brought in Alberto Antonini from Italy and they found some actually really old vineyards he thinks some of them might be as old as 200 years old, way up in the mountains, you know, under the shadow of Mount Ararat. And, uh, and they're using only the, the local grape, the Areni Noir, and seeing what they can do with it. And I tasted the second vintage, and I thought it was really compelling. And only the second vintage, you know, I'm really excited. But such a historical place at the yeah. same time. Yeah, exactly. So I'm really excited to see what happens there because I think once somebody comes in and starts making good wine and gets it out there, then other people say, hey, you know, I want to go there and check that out too and see what I can do. And you saw so, that happen in Greece. Exactly. So maybe Armenia will be the next big 
place. And a lot of times it feels like, at least when it comes to Europe, you're covering these historical regions that have made wine for a long time, but that are going through some sort of wine revolution at the same time. To me, that's the most interesting thing. It's the story of people, and, and it's watching history in action. That's super compelling. And you get to write about it, kind of like on, the, on yeah. the front lines, like yeah. kind of talk about what's happening, yeah. which otherwise might be unnoticed. There's just, not a lot of other exactly. people on the Armenian beat, like really, you know. No, exactly, exactly. And I mean, that's, that's the other thing. It's what I liked about cooking was sharing delicious things with other people. And what I didn't like about cooking was never seeing the delight that the people took from the food that I sent out. And what I like about wine is that I have a more direct connection. And I like to share things that I think are delicious and I hope other people find delicious as well. So that's probably the key motivation for wanting to write, is that you would like to share this with people. I, I would say that is the, the key motivation. That, and it's just a really good excuse to ask questions. You know, I think that's, um, that's one of the things that I learned from Jeffrey Steingarten and that I learned again from Josh is the key to being a good writer is being able to admit that you know nothing and being willing to be really vulnerable and just ask questions. No matter how stupid they seem, you can't ask too many questions. And it's a great way to, to go around the world and learn about things. In another part of the world, you've also covered what's happening in Canada. I have. So that, that's a sort of very selfish interest because I'm from, ups, I'm from basically Niagara Falls, a little north of there, if you can imagine. You lived on a houseboat. <laughs> no. <laughs> no, I lived on the Niagara River, but up, upstream from the falls. <laughs> so <laughs> in a small town called Lewiston. And, um, and my parents are still up there. And it's, you know, it's a beautiful area of the world. But when I grew up, the people growing grapes sold them to Welch's. There was no wine industry at all. And, and Canada was someplace I went many times a week. I was in a youth orchestra in Ontario. So I spent a lot of time in Canada. And gas was cheaper there. So we went to Canada, you know, for, to fill up the tank and, <laughs> and to get your beer, you know. But you did not go there for food. And you certainly didn't go there for wine. So it was, it's fascinating to me to go back today. And it's like a little Sonoma now on the Canadian side. And it's, it's a beautiful area. Now there's all these little, little farms with little attached restaurants. And there is a burgeoning wine industry making some really good Riesling, I think, um, and also some really good Chardonnay and Pinot Noir. I think that's what they're concentrating the hardest on. And the very undersung Canadian Gamay. <laughs> is that coming up, the Canadian Gamay? I've never heard of that before. There is great Gamay in Ontario. And uh, there just needs to be more of it. But even the winemakers there don't really like to, to talk about it. They're, they're all like, oh, Ontario Chardonnay is where it's at. I'm like, yes, but... Gamay is really good too. There's nothing wrong with a really good Cru Beaujolais, and so it's like the Schiava of Canada. Like right. no one wants to admit that it's there and tastes pretty good. Yeah, exactly. So you know, if I don't know what um, Gamays are coming into the states right now, but if you ever have a chance to taste the ones from Malavoir or Thirteenth Street Winery, you know these are terrific, absolutely terrific. So it's it's exciting to watch a an area that I know intimately as well and see that transform. But you've seen a lot of change in wine regions. You've probably also seen a fair amount of change at the magazine, right? I mean, you were there for 17 years. It moved out of the yeah. schoolhouse and to offices and different parts of the country. <laughs> I mean, there's probably been some things that happened, right? 
Definitely. I mean, we still only have two two offices, and the California office still does just the domestic wines, and we still do all the imported in New York. But we taste so many more wines than we did then, and from so many more parts of the world. And because of that, also, you know, Josh can't do it all by himself. He he used to pretty much. He was the critic for all the imported wines in the world, and then we had a California critic in um, in our San Francisco office. But uh, now we have a whole field of critics. We have Patricio Tapia, who's based in Santiago, but comes up to the office a few times a year to do tastings, and he covers all of South America for us and Spain. We have Stephanie Johnson, who does Italy, and we have Luke Sikora, who is now doing California, and Patrick Kamiski, who does the Pacific Northwest, and... So it's it's a lot more wines, it's more people, more voices as well, uh, which is, I think, makes for much more interesting reading rather than just hearing the same person's opinion. And, and it allows us just to cover much more, be in a lot more places. You've been in a few, huh? <laughs> I mean, you yourself, it seems like. I you, have. You managed to fulfill that dream of getting back to Greece and then to do more traveling. I think that... It's the only way, besides tasting wine, it's the only way to really get to know a, a wine is to go see where it's grown, go see the people who, who make it. And, um, and besides, it's just great to, to put yourself in some place where you don't know anything and you don't know how to get around and you don't know the language necessarily. And, you know, I, I like being put in positions where it's sink or swim, <laughs> you know, you got to figure it out and got to figure it out quick. Tara, Q. Thomas, the executive editor of Wine and Spirits magazine, likes to go to places where she doesn't know so that you can know more. Thank you very much for being here today. Thank you. Tara Q. Thomas of Wine and Spirits magazine. All Drink to That is hosted and produced by myself, Levy Dalton. Aaron Scala has contributed original pieces. Editorial assistance has been provided by Bill Kimsey. The show music was performed and composed by Rob Moose and Thomas Bartlett. Show artwork by Alicia Tenoyan. T-shirts, sweatshirts, coffee mugs, and so much more, including show stickers, notebooks, and even gift wrap are available for sale if you check the show website, alldrinktothatpod.com. That's I-L-L, drinktothatpod.com, which is the same place you'd go to sign up for our email list or to make one of the crucially important donations that help keep this show operating. You can donate from anywhere using PayPal or Stripe on the show website. Remember to hit subscribe or to follow this show in your favorite podcast app, please. That's super important to see every episode. And thank you for listening.